Hey everyone, I was in London for a few days there getting to see the talk from Nick Hudson of Pandata, South Africa, and I also went to the Health Optimization Summit and grabbed a few interviews there. But I met Beverly Turner at the Nick Hudson event and she asked, are you here in London this evening? Because we got a show on and I think you could fit in quite nicely there. And it was about kind of hysteria and hypochondria and mental health following the two-year pandemic period. So we had a great discussion. I was in studio for around nearly 20 minutes piece. And also a psychologist was on Zoom link and great discussion. And I got out quite a few facts and bits of data there that many may not be aware of. So delighted to get the opportunity and I think you'll really enjoy this piece. And please do, of course, sign up for the GB News app and go to their YouTube channel and subscribe. And I've put the link to the full show below in the description box. So I'm just taking out the piece where, where we had this discussion. So enjoy and share, hit the subscribe bell, do the usual. Uh, we gotta keep talking about these things. Thank you. It is time for the big question in which we tackle a major news story of the day from multiple points of view. Now, throughout the pandemic, we were bombarded with messages telling us to believe that we may be sick, even if we felt A-OK. -okay. We have been taught to be hypervigilant about pathogens which are unlikely to harm us, but must be feared. Mollycoddled by the government and urged to be on tenterhooks for the next virus. Moneypox, monkeypox, mania, anyone? Moneypox, appropriately. Uh, so are we becoming a nation of hypochondriacs? I am delighted to say that I am joined in the studio by Ivor Cummins, Twitter legend known as the Fat Emperor. Now, Ivor, you were the first man to wake me up to the fact that uh, the danger I was hearing about from the mainstream media didn't seem to match the reality around me. So when we were going to talk about this notion of what has happened to us in the last two years, our perception of risk, are we more fearful now? How do we get out of this? I'm so happy you're here. What has happened in the last two years and was it already happening? Yeah, well, Bev, no, delighted to be here. And yeah, I think it's been happening for many decades, actually. There's been a process of kind of safeism occurring. Safeism. I love that. What do you mean by safeism? So safeism is a kind of a movement towards a disproportionate focus on safety because safety is good. It's important, you know, road safety and we've reduced accidents, lots of good stuff. Mm. But I have a friend who's a kind of historian and a technical manager, a senior leader, and he's into psychology too. And he's been watching what I've seen, that safety has become more and more dominant to the point that it goes beyond the cost benefit. It, it gets into risks that are so low that we shouldn't really be overly focusing on them. Mm. And he's seen that happening in his power generation roles and I've seen it in corporate. So I think the whole of society has been moving steadily towards risk aversion, risk intolerance, almost to an irrational uh, point. And then COVID came in and that's where things really exploded. So, but am I right in saying that it all started with litigation. I generally think the major changes in society can normally be um, traced back to lawyers. At some point there's a solicitor making a lot of money and signing a lot of papers, right? And it feels like health and safety legislation ha has ramped up over it the last, what, probably 40 years? 80? Oh, hang on a minute, 80s is more than 40 years ago. I keep forgetting what year we're in. Um, but 80s and 90s and the adverts, have you been injured at work? Was it your fault? All of that has 
started it, didn't it? Yeah, that's a, a big driver. And of course, the insurance industry as well is, is making nice profits out of this whole thing as well. But certainly, I mean, around 15 or 20 years ago, I have five kids and I began to hear that the schools were banning running in the playground. Now, that's clearly absurd. I mean, that's, that's an offence to childhood. Mm -hmm. And yet it was happening. And that was being driven by insurance claims. Mm -hmm. So there wasn't some, you know, nasty corporation driving some agenda. It was just naturally happening by this litigious environment. Mm -hmm. So that is one driver that's remorselessly been pushing it forward. But then there are the whole safety teams and quangos and corporate bureaucracies of safety that increasingly legislate themselves for everything because it gives them a bigger role. And it's a natural human thing mm. to keep on driving the stuff that makes you the expert, the leader. So there's an effect there as well. Oh. OK, so what happened during the last two years then, Ivor? Well, yeah, big story. So essentially in February, March 2020, I did get involved with this because everyone was coming to me asking me, well, what's the risk? And I'm the risk person. So I was 20 years plus as a risk manager, crisis manager, master technologist in corporate, you know, people managing people uh, as well. Mm. But I looked and I found very quickly the Diamond Princess and rapidly I was able to see because... And that was the cruise. The cruise ship. Which was a perfect kind of petri dish of analysis, wasn't it? It was no single piece of data or scenario is perfect, but it was as close as you could get. Yeah. So as Professor Michael Levitt, who saw the same thing, pointed out, mm. It had 40 times the people density of the most dense uh, city on Earth, Hong Kong. Mm. 40 times the density. they're all in little cabins like that in yes. bunk beds and all eating like on the buffet, right? Air conditioning shared yeah. and no real precautions. Yeah. So we got to see that Petri ship, if you will, and we got to see that the fatality rate, because there were elderly people, a lot of them on yeah. board, uh, there were seven deaths or eight deaths in the following several weeks and there were people in their late 70s and 80s and everyone else there was no question of death and there were 3,700. So you could do a quick calculation and say the upper bound in an extreme exposure scenario is around 0.15%. And that's exactly what Professor John Ioannidis, one of the most celebrated scientists, epidemiologists and doctor uh, from Stanford in the world, did multiple studies in summer of 2020 and showed that from antibody tests, 0.15%. Mm. So it kept coming up and now after two years, Guess what? UK, which was hard hit by COVID and got multiple seasons, it's around the 0.1 something percent. Yeah. You know? So you could see that, I could see that, but of course the majority of the public, I could only see that because you were telling me on YouTube, but the public were fed an unleavened diet of anti-science figures, uh, so much of what we understood about the use of data went out the window, so much of what we understood about natural immunity was ignored. There were all of these markers of good medical, clinical, scientific process which were disregarded in the last two years. What has that done to the collective psyche of the country? Yeah, well, I know that's a big question. It's an existential one, Ivo. It's not beyond the limits of your <laughs> well, capabilities. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I was a people manager for, for nearly 15 years as well, and I had to deal with grown you know, men and women crying in the room at me from anxiety, performance anxiety. So I have a lot of experience of that. And I, I, I'm a people watcher. So yes, our, our people have come from being too safest, I would say, generally. Mm -hmm. And they've gone rapidly downhill to a really bad place, generally speaking. 
And we have people now, we know the extremes, people yeah. wearing a mask in a car on their own. I mean, that is a, essentially psychosis. Um, but they, we've normalised psychosis. We have essentially... And we've normalised mm, OCD. We normalised sterilising yeah. hands obsessively. Yeah, and it wasn't even spread. We knew from early on it was aerosol spread. And just to the mask example, we had mask experts in Congress uh, testifying. One guy who testified in 400 cases of environmental exposure to even anthrax, he's an expert. And he went through exactly why the masks have almost no effect on an aerosol. It all completely goes out through the gaps. But the fear was such that everybody mm. presumed that the pathogen was walking around and that healthy-looking people were potential mm. source of death. And I want to bring in um, another guest now. Uh, Jade Thomas is a health anxiety expert. Hello, Jade. Uh, if you are there, because you work with um, people who obviously suffer from um, health anxiety. Hello. Tell us, first of all, what is health anxiety? Isn't that the, the, what we used to call a hypochondriac? Yeah, so health anxiety and hypochondriacs are kind of one in the same. But essentially, health anxiety is an obsessive, irrational worry about having a medical condition or becoming sick. Um, and I want to emphasize that it is an irrational worry. So it's not just when you maybe have a tickly throat and then you think, oh, maybe I'm becoming a bit sick. It's that irrational fear of becoming sick or becoming seriously unwell. Mm. And have you noticed an increase in the number of people coming to see you as a psychotherapist for treatment post-pandemic? Yeah, so based kind of generalising and based on my own clinical practice and my clinical work, I have seen a rise in people seeking support for health anxiety or other mental health issues that have maybe been triggered due to COVID-19, for example, depression as well, coming under that bracket. Um, but also thinking about those patients who maybe did suffer from anxiety and how the pandemic increased that for them. Um, and also when we had a lack of support system at the time that maybe that was really needed. So there has almost been a backlog and, and I have seen an increase in my clinical work. Is it fair to say then, Jade, that um, patients, clients who come to see you had a backdrop of, of mental illness or emotional needs before the pandemic that have been exacerbated by it? Or are you seeing people who were previously uh, fully functioning, living a normal life, not suffering from depression, not having anxiety, but that the pandemic has swung their um, moodometer towards anxious? Completely both of those. So I've had um, clients who have, like, like I said earlier, suffered from um, me mental health conditions, whether that be anxiety, depression, OCD, um, and that the pandemic has exacerbated that. And then also clients who have come to me who maybe they have become anxious because of the pandemic um, that are really seeing some health anxiety symptoms coming through. Ivor, we could all see this coming, couldn't we? I mean, surely, sure. I mean, did the, in terms of talking about risk and benefit, the government, as well, they may have done a risk benefit analysis of lockdowns, but if they did, they never showed it to us. That's another failure of this process, isn't it, to make this very important calculation? Yeah, there's been an absolute, you know, lack of risk benefit across the world. So the 2019 WHO guidelines are clear, decades of Western science. You don't lock down, you don't isolate asymptomatic, yada, yada, yada. 
but the cost benefit should have been, of course, been done. Uh, just to give an example to people, the Irish data from the Central Statistics Office is, is very good and it's all divulged. And for a person under 50, quite clearly, one in 50,000 risk for the group under 50. And that includes all the comorbidities and people with severe issues, in fairness, and also that's with a positive PCR. That's, that's the risk of death, not just severe illness. Uh, of death, exactly. And death is the measure, the key measure, because everything else correlates with death. So if we take Sweden, for instance, they had one of the lowest excess mortalities in the whole pandemic period. It was published in The Telegraph two weeks ago. They had no lockdowns, no masks, and kids up to 16 in school. And CNN went there in May 2020. I have the video in case it disappears. And they were in the cafes, in the bars, and elderly women were getting their haircut and they interviewed them. It was mm. shocking mm. to CNN. But with that, they're the lowest excess mortality in Europe. And people then say, oh, well, maybe the mortality wasn't affected, as The Lancet published in 2020, no effect on mortality from lockdown. But also, their ICU loading was no different than the countries that locked down hard. Mm. So all of these measures are kind of independent, largely. And Johns Hopkins yesterday just published a study, Johns Hopkins, mm. and they have said the same thing that maybe 10,000 people might have been saved across a billion people mm. in America and so, Europe. Jade, I have, I have a fun game that I like to play, which is when I get into taxis and I always chat to the drivers, I make them, first of all, I make them put on GB News Radio so I know what's going on. And then I say to them, have you been over COVID? And we have a little chat. And then I go, what do you think the average age of death was? in this country from COVID-19. What do you reckon? Because I find it perpetually entertaining when they say, oh, 25, 40. Some of them say, well, we know 50. And when you say the average age of death was 82, we, and, our, and our life expectancy is 81, they go, really? No. And it's like a light bulb, they realise. What do you do in your therapy room? <laughs> Not that, I'm guessing. You can have that, Jade, if you want to take that back and try that with them. That might work therapeutically, I don't know. Um, but what, what do you do in terms of treating people to, to embolden them again, to realise that they have to reassess their parameters of risk? So I don't use that technique, um, <laughs> but I, I guess a good place to start would be making them more aware of their thoughts and starting because you can't do any work if somebody isn't self-aware and usually these irrational thoughts aren't coming from a place of being self-aware so the first stage in you know therapeutic treatment would be working on some self-awareness skills and you know even just sometimes talking it out in you know out loud can make them almost hear it back and then they suddenly start to question and become that a little bit more self-aware but it's also a case of becoming aware of how exposed we were for the past two years through the the news and media about you know there was there was a constant death toll that was on the news and and all these stats and, and figures were kind of thrown down up thrown at us mm. so also thinking about how aware we were then um and also how that might have changed now going back into normality so a good place to start is about thinking about you know your thought processes um and really working on that self-awareness mm. and Ivor, one of the things that i've been frustrated with and i'm sure you have as well with your interest in lifestyle induced illnesses and chronic illnesses and obesity the one thing we didn't do during the last two years was to educate people, to empower them to take care of their individual health, so to control the controllables. Is that something that you think would help 
people who now are frightened and just not feeling strong? Yeah, absolutely, because I remember a psychiatrist I interviewed once said, believe it or not, your brain is part of your body. <laughs> and metabolic health has a huge connection through to neurological health um, in general. So you can get an amazing boost in neurological health and, and these depression type problems by reducing insulin resistance, etc. And even on COVID, the funny thing is Israel came out with a study a few weeks ago and many more studies said the same, that a low vitamin D level was associated with, I think it was 18 times yeah. or 14 times the risk of severe outcome. And there were many studies in 2020 showing this. But you raise your vitamin D level by reducing your processed food, by getting healthy sun exposure, by many pathways, not just supplements. And you can do that. And we could get that advice to people and it would help them in every facet of their lives, including hugely reduced COVID burden. But we didn't. What, what do you think, um, Jade, is the long-term danger if we don't de-radicalise, particularly the young generation as we come out of this, and to empower them to understand that, you know, life is tough, but they are tougher? What are the longer-term implications? So there's actually some, again, basing this off my clinical work, but also basing it off some research that I've read, that there's significant evidence to show that there is a decline in resilience in young people and in children. And with that, rates of anxiety and depression are increasing. Um, and also that younger age groups may be more vulnerable to mental, the mental health impact of the pandemic. So, and it actually suggested, this piece of research in particular suggested that one of the reasons for this is that we've actually seen a rise in helicopter parenting, mm. which is the type of parenting that suggests that the world is not safe. Obviously understandable coming out of the pandemic that that might be the type of parenting that is happening, but also the type of parenting that might be, I'll do it for you. So obviously, as a result of that, we're seeing a decline in resilience in young people. Yeah. And also society's views on mental health are really changing as well. It's, it's much more socially acceptable to admit that you are struggling with anxiety or with health anxiety. And with that, we're seeing a huge increase in psychiatric and mental health diagnoses of anxiety, generalised anxiety disorder and other mental health illnesses. Thank you. Um, last word to you, Iva. Give me some reasons to be cheerful, because I've got three kids. One of them's a teenager. And it's a very fine line between telling them, yes, I, you know, I hear your anxiety, and telling them to buck up, as my mother would have said. And how do we get that balance right? Yeah, it's a tough one. It's been a grim couple of years. Uh, I think cognitive psychotherapy, if people look it up, is a fantastic tool. I've used it with employees and many people over the years. And it helps you take your subconscious thoughts of doom and dread and write them down and then analyze them in the way that I or an engineer would for the actual risk mm. and the actual probability. So all of that, a lot more could be done with. Uh, and just speaking in the last word, for Ireland, those figures under 25, one in half a million yeah. was the risk of mortality. And that includes seriously comorbid. So yeah. last, last word I say, covidchroniclesmovie.com, all one word. We got one of the largest Kickstarters in the British Isles a couple of years ago, and we made a movie that talks through pretty much all of this. Yeah. It's free. Right, thank you guys, thank you so much. Ivor Cummings, AKA the Fat Emperor, biomechanical engineer, expert on chronic diseases and psychotherapist and health anxiety expert, Jade Thomas. 
As always, hope you enjoyed that and don't forget to hit the like button and the subscribe button, all important. And do hit that little notification bell also. And thanks so much to all my Patreon and PayPal supporters. Helps keep me going, that's a key source of income. And with trips to London and all the other work I do, it really helps to keep supported there at some level. So anyone else seeing my material, again, please consider hopping on. The links are down below. So thanks, everyone. And here's the place where you get the non-corporate, non-media, legacy, biased kind of information and data. And I hope to keep delivering that so you can keep enjoying getting true insights into what's going on in the world today. Thank you.